3: We bring you Mothman's Red Eye Blend. Yes, delicious Panama beans. Go to lastpodcastmerch.com to order yours today. (laughs) everybody it's mac mckinley here i'm not exactly a part of the zeno universe <laughs> I'm just a giant Mech who's a fan of the Xeno universe. That's right, it's me, Mech McKinley. I shoot piss out of my knees. (laughs) It's actually gasoline! And I'm a bruiser. I didn't know how to open this.
4: (laughs) Now, this is a fascinating thing, because Mech McKinley obviously is a reference to President McKinley. And what did President McKinley do? Perpetrated Westward Expansion. Now, what does it mean for a subjugated people to be attacked by a system wholly alien to their own being? Now, this is why the series is so incredibly fascinating. Also, I'm really feeling it. It's me, joke. <laughs> I'm just a bright-eyed boy. Wow. And I definitely love me my childhood friend and the Monado. And I hate the robots that killed everyone I've ever loved. Gosh, gosh, I hate these robots. I hope I don't uh, end up killing God. Also, maybe I'm also God. Maybe God is me and also the universe, but also we're in a simulation built by God. (coughs) Also, uh, I have a friend named Ricky. He's 40 years old. He's a little bunny
3: creature. I love him. I'm really feeling it. And also it is me, German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. I don't know why I'm here. Why am I trapped in this weird anime bullshit world? It makes no sense to me. I am
4: also a German philosopher. I am Karen (laughs) Horny. I'm Karen Horny. What? I'm an actual German psychoanalyst. I helped develop a modern working theory of neurosis. (laughs) And my name, unbelievably enough, is
3: Karen (laughs) Horny. All right. Look, if you're as confused by this intro as we are, it's because we're confused. This has been an insane undertaking. What have we done? Remember how mad you got at me for making us do uh, Shin Megami Tensei and Persona. and I
4: wish we could be doing Shin Megami me Tensei. I, absolute absolutely of Shin that. It is, we
3: are doing the Xeno series. I should say most recently you might have been aware of the Xeno Chronicles games on uh, Nintendo Xeno Blade platforms.
4: Chronicles. Sorry,
3: sorry. Xeno Blade Chronicles. How how dare I? Uh, on the Nintendo platforms. I mean, these are incredibly dense JRPGs that have um, uh, layers of religious iconography, massive sci-fi space opera shit um, uh, ph- philosopher, uh, uh concept philosophical concepts by folks like Nietzsche, Carl Jung, uh uh Sigmund Freud uh you know it all wrapped into this insanely ambitious Uh, Storytelling game world uh, that has undertaken many different forms. uh, That is, they're all like essentially spiritual successors in a lot of ways. And, um, but you know what? At the end of the day, and as I was going into this episode with you, I I was a little worried waking up today, being like, what am I trying to say with this? Or what is this trying to say to me? As we always attempt to find some kind of thesis or through line or some overall concept and really what this is about beyond all of that stuff is really a story about a creator who who rose and fell and rose again, who failed upwards, who played the long game, who never gave up in an attempt to tell ambitious stories with big, wild swings in a format that is really, really fun to work in, uh, the JRPG format. Uh, the, it really works its way through the history of JRPGs uh, from the very beginning. And and we'll, we'll learn more about that as well. What?
4: Uh, it's, I honestly, this week of research has been like slamming my head into a brick wall. There, <laughs> each single entry in this series is a nightmare tangle of lore and influences, <laughs> yeah. each with its own insanely dedicated fan base. And at the end of the day, my thesis is that this is what happens uh, when all is said and done. Nearly thirty years later, when the two uh, parties that were the most pissed off by the success of Final Fantasy VII <laughs> finally teamed up and got, and like got got yeah. one over on Square. Yeah,
3: kind of. Yeah, it's very very heavily based on Final Fantasy VII, which is another really interesting thing. And and you know. It it has a lot to say, I think, as we talk about. Because again, we're going to avoid getting too far into the weeds in terms of the actual plots of these games. I
4: mean, I have a twenty minute l- monologue prepared about <laughs> them big anime waifu titties in Xenoblade Chronicles Two.
3: We're going to try to not get God lost. damn. In the- Crevices, damn, and Holden. folds of the big anime wibby wobby Wawa wawa. Oh, have all right, you seen that? becoming wibby wobby man <laughs> over here. Let's so all dry him off. You, Mariki, get in here and dry this man off. It's disgusting what's happened. What I'm Joke's right on now.
4: you. She's got giant anime <laughs> begongos.
3: All right. Either please, way, come I on.
4: win. I win. <laughs> Also, I realize I'm that nerdy guy bragging about his partner's giant rack and thus making me the most insufferable person on the internet. <laughs> uh, just pretend I didn't say that. Pretend I wasn't yep. that
3: guy on microphone. Please, Jake, please. And before we even get into all of this, and and if you are as confused as we are, definitely stick around and make sure that... Uh, What's going on? I'm sorry. On?
4: I'm sorry. This coming in, coming in You're just uh, handed in a live, note by an angry uh, fiance. Go on. Uh, my fiance, who should have been angry about all that stuff I said, just handed me a <laughs> note uh, to let me know that she looked it up and the German psychoanalyst, uh, her name is Karen Hornay. Though it is ah. spelled horny,
3: it is Hornay. Hornay the science guy. Uh,
4: H-O-R-N-E-Y. How was I to know? <laughs> That's horny, baby. <laughs>
3: All right, Jake, do you need to go blast one out in the bathroom before we get into this? Because I don't know what's going on over here. I,
4: you know what? I, <laughs> I watched a lot of footage of Xenoblade Chronicles
3: 2. <laughs> it, is, it is horny. There's a very, especially... Volume 2. We will get into that. Um, that is largely due to a character designer that moonlit as a hentai uh, Lolita doll fetish artist, but uh, I digress. First of all, I just want to say thank you, Michael. This is an old school. We no longer offer this. Maybe we'll offer it again someday, but not anytime soon. Old school Patreon-funded episode. So please do not hit me up and inundate me with how to uh, fund a Patreon episode. I uh, We no longer offer that layer, but I will say, Michael, congrats. One of our last final couple of uh, episodes that we still need to do from this old uh, version of our Patreon. Uh, Michael wants to dedicate this to his wife, Lisa, and their daughter, uh, It is uh, So this one is for my two best ladies. Aww. Thank you so much.
4: I'm sorry. Oh, so no. Much. oh, no. Oh, yeah. no. I said a lot yes. of
3: stuff. Yeah, you did, Jake. God. You said a lot of stuff. Okay. Oh, no. You're disgusting. You're an animal.
4: I mean, yes, but a, an animal can feel shame.
3: <laughs> so so I don't even know what the gush is for us for this one. Honestly, Xenoblade Chron- Chronicles is a game I'm excited to be enjoying a little bit of now. Uh, but it is something I'd always meant to play when it first came out on the Wii, I believe it was. It was a JRPG that, especially at a time when I was playing a ton of JRPGs, albeit on my Nintendo 3DS, it was definitely something I was eyeing from a distance and then uh Xenoblade Chronicles X and then uh Xenoblade Chronicles 2 uh came out on the Wii U and then the Switch uh, as well as that deluxe edition of Xenoblade Chronicles and I'd heard of like the Xeno thing in the past as a PlayStation owner and a JRPG lover I have no fucking idea why I I'd never played Xeno Gears or uh Xeno Saga I I'm kind of confused as to why uh because I definitely it, looking back, and I'm like, oh, that was totally my shit. I'm not sure. Maybe it was just like I didn't trust anything outside of the Final Fantasy, which would make Takahashi, by the way, want to fu- like fucking spit in my face. <sighs> I, I maybe didn't trust anything outside of the Final Fantasy brand at that time. Maybe I just wasn't willing to make a risk like that. Or it definitely wasn't as it wasn't like into anime like at all back when I, uh, that game came out. So I think it's stuff with like anime bullshit on the cover. Uh, maybe kind of uh didn't really draw me in like I think it should have in hindsight. I'm not sure why. I d- really don't know. Other than I just didn't have one friend to be like, you know what? You should play Xenogears. You know, I think maybe if that was, if I literally had that in my life, just like I had that one friend saying, dude, you need to check this game out and sat me down. To uh, give a gander at Final Fantasy VII, but I am um, glad to have an excuse to finally be enjoying some uh, Xenoblade uh, in its more modern incarnation, and really just enjoyed this again as a story of like the tri- trials and tribulations of a creator that never gave up, and still to this day is telling ambitious sci-fi. JRPG stories based in religious iconography and heavy philosophical themes and concepts. It's really cool. And it really is a testament to Takahashi specifically. There's a lot of other people involved and we will talk about that. But it is a testament to this person for uh, continuing to make these big wild swings and stick to their guns in a way that you don't see a lot, I feel like. When it comes to Japanese game devs, Jake, how about you?
4: Uh, well, you said you're yearning for a friend who would have sat you down and said you got to play Gears. I have a weirdly opposite experience where uh, I was an N sixty four kid, but I had a friend. I had many friends who were PlayStation kids, and I remember specifically. Going to a friend's house, I think a a sleepover, believe it or not. Remember those? Oh, man. That was, the. oh, boy, I can't wait to be in an uncomfortable sleeping bag on the floor and then wake up first and have no idea what to do or what to say to people. (laughs) Amazing. Amazing experience. But uh, we were playing PlayStation games and obviously I was hungry to experience all these games that I never got to play in my own life. And I was immediately drawn to Gears because it was a squared uh, RPG from the, you know, all the ads in the video game magazines were like, from the pr- studio that brought you Final Fantasy 7, look at this cool anime guy, he looks tough, look at these cool robots, this is going to be great. And I was like, oh, can we play this? And this kid just... Adam. Adam looked at me and was like, eh, you don't want to play that. <laughs> and I was like, huh? And he was like, yeah, nah. And I was like, oh, okay. And completely forgot about it. Um, I was—I completely missed everything about the Xenosaga series back on the PlayStation 2. Um, the most I ever got from it was uh, the main kind of mascot character of those games, Cosmos, the uh, android battle lady showed up in a lot of crossover games I played, like in the Super Robot Tyson series. She shows up as a character, and she was like a very popular kind of like uh, Easter egg that was thrown in a lot of Bandai Namco games and Monolith Soft uh, productions. A lot of figurines on the anime convention circuit, I think some cosplay, you know, whatever. Like, I knew she was a character from that game, from the guy that did Xenogears. And weirdly enough, Xenoblade Chronicles I experienced pretty much beginning to end uh, in 2014.
3: When uh, I've, I've mentioned this, but there oh, was oh yeah, that's right, yeah, this bizarre depressive period of yours connected to Xenoblade Chronicles on the Wii.
4: <laughs> but not—it's even worse than that because I had this horrifying, like, just habit where I went out. I did stand up. I was in New York. Uh, you know, not making a lot of movers and shakers, making a lot of friends, but nothing, you know, I had a podcast, it wasn't, you know, uh, shaking the earth, I was uh, doing a lot of open mics, and like, you know, just, I was, it was a very tumultuous time for me, and my, my ritual at the end of every night, besides uh, cramming my fucking gob with dollar pizza until I got sicker and fatter and more depressed... <laughs> was I would just binge watch a bunch of fucking Let's Plays, Game Grumps, like uh, a bunch of other smaller channels. And one of those Let's Players, don't actually look them up, like it's a very acquired taste. He's like this rabid Nintendo fanboy with a very enthusiastic uh, speaking style named Chucka Conroy, did a 95 part Xenoblade Chronicles Playthrough, and he broke down the story elements. Told you know, pointed out little Easter eggs. It was a very engaging at the time uh, run through of the story, and I just kind of just play. I just like experienced it that way. And obviously, nowadays my let's play uh, 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 intake is far less uh, prolific and sad. Yeah, because how many hours must that have been? I mean, good hundreds Lord. of hours. Hundreds of hours. Yeah. Uh, dozens of hours at the very least. Some of these uh, installments are 40 minutes long, 50 minutes long. Uh, the game itself, Xenoblade, Chron- Xenoblade Chronicles, if played end-to-end, the cutscenes would be 11 hours long. Like, yeah. These are insanely long games. And uh, just, uh, you know, the journey of Shulk, Ryan, Sharla, Melia... Dunban, Ricky, like, and just, they're, they're just making their way across the Bionis and the Mechonis. The twists, the turns, the insane rug pulls that happen one after the other. I just was in the groove of it. I really appreciated what they were doing and all the insane mechanics on mechanics on mechanics that I personally didn't have the time or energy to learn. But having someone else just be like, oh, yeah, this is how you craft the ideal gem loadout for uh, Dunban so that he can maximize evasiveness. i am be like, sounds good to me. But that was a – I definitely – I look back on the – I think it was this and a full playthrough of Fallout New Vegas where my prime – like, I am watching way too many Let's Plays on my phone in bed in a shitty basement apartment in Brooklyn for like – I don't know. I'm sorry this way. Did, did this get dark or is this relatable and endearing? <laughs> yeah,
3: it's relatable and endearing. Oh, I love this. Oh, thank God. I had like almost no gush. So I'm glad you had. You have this bizarre dark memory. <laughs> hey, we've all got it. You know what I mean? I've I've been there before for sure depression playing uh, stuff. Uh, Reading the Bone uh, series. comic books (laughs) was during my unemployment year. I have a weird, Mm. and I want to do Bone soon, by the way. A fan hit us up uh, screaming about it. And I was like, oh, right, Bone. I fucking love Bone. I have such a specific memory of literally sweating reading those in the middle of the summer, jobless, Chain smoking by my open window, like for just hours on end, for like a week or two straight. And I will always, therefore, when I think of that comic, think of like just pure. Uh, denial, depression. Like, just not realizing, like, I was in a terrible pl- place in my life. It's
4: weird that, yeah, yeah. In, in our advanced age, we now look back and, like, oh, I remember that and I enjoyed it. And you're like, oh, I remember that and I was in a full dissociative, non existent yes. state.
3: Boom blocks as well. Very much associated <laughs> with just playing that game for hours on it. Anyways, let's get into it. Zeno is a series of Japanese role playing games created by Tetsuya Takahashi. Takahashi, which was first released via uh, dev company Squaresoft for the PlayStation in 1998 under the title Gears, The various games are mostly spiritual sequels, but all exist in a science fiction based world with fantasy elements and tend to feature psychological, philosophical and religious themes. So let's talk about them. Takahashi. By the way, there's other big players. Uh, It's not just Takahashi. We'll get into the other players in just a little bit. But uh, Takahashi kind of is the through line. To all For all the games. So we will highlight him as uh, the, the major impetus. Born in uh, Shizuoka Prefecture, Japan in 1966, his family was very competitive, something he hid from. He said, I've been someone with low self-esteem ever since I was a child. So it might be that I want to play God within a world that I create. I was a child that really looked forward to the future. When I was a kid, there were a lot of books about a positive future. And I love to think how this and that would happen in the future. That's possibly where dreaming about fantasy world started for me. As a kid, he loved reading manga as well as sci-fi novels. A huge influence on Xenogears is going to be a book called Childhood's End by Arthur C. Clarke, including stuff like humanity evolving into a singular being of vast cosmic intelligence, as well as the concept of children with telekinetic powers. He also recounts a time as a child in a Buddhist temple meeting with the chief priest and having early doubts about religion, which propelled him to take a deep interest in it, not just learning about it, but questioning it and seeing all the various different forms of it, uh, which again is going to feed into the whole series as we go on. So yeah, as a kid, definitely just that shy, awkward, weird type, loner, uh, but has an interesting like has an interesting stubbornness uh, that you don't see with that type as well. Kind of someone like stuck in uh, or, or someone who's like determined to, you know, make their make their own world around them. Uh, so he starts out in video games in the 80s working for Nihon Falcom. And uh, this guy's Dev Company, which is known for the Ease, Mm YS, the Legend of Heroes, and Trail series. And if you don't know this stuff, and this kind of stuff I wasn't super familiar with, going back and watching a lot of YouTube Let's Plays Mm -hmm. of those games, really just old gameplay footage. There's barely a Let's Play about it, not, not a lot of commentary. These are like the rudimentary <laughs> earliest versions of especially action RPGs and uh, RPGs that have, yes, there's leveling up and something like that, but it maybe looks a little bit more like Gauntlet almost or like um, Zelda even or something like that, but just with heavier games mechanics and storytelling stuff. But the way that they would do it back in the day, I mean, was so crazy. Like one of the games... Um, what was it? Uh, one of the... Oh, yeah. Um, Nihon's first RPG, uh, this was called Panorama Toe or Panorama Island in translation, came out in, 19, in 1983. It reminded me a lot of, if you've ever seen like a, the original version of Dwarf Fortress. Yeah. That like very, very hugely popular, but, but very... Uh, just archaic and 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 um, very complicated video game that was made by the two brothers that uh, has now kind of changed forms and gotten a little more smooth around the edges. But it looks like that. There's a very busy screen, a lot going on, the different, like, squares with different uh, gaming elements happening, like, bizarre, like just just troubling to look at <laughs> is how I would describe it because you're just it's so in depth and so insane for
4: every child of the uh 80, of the Nintendo era that picked up Xanadu and yeah. was hoping for another legend of Zelda only to discover that it was this indecipherable mess of squares and statistics that was Nihon Falcom as well.
3: And funnily enough, Jake, that is the game that uh, Takahashi plays in 1987 that gives him an interest in the games industry. That's the game that like brought him... That that was his Zelda like yeah. Zelda was for me. <laughs> Insane. You know what I mean? It like, brought him to games in a huge way. Um, so yeah, dr- uh, there's also Dragon Slayer first released in 1984. That has kind of a more gauntlet vibe. Um, but it isn't until Ease 1, Ancient Ease vanished in 1987 that we get something more closely resembling the JRPGs like, um, you know, the first Final Fantasy, Dragon Quest, that sort of thing. Takahashi did the monster graphics for the 1989 game Ease 3, Wanderers from Ease. I think that's his first big credit. He then moves over to Squaresoft in the early 90s. And was credited for doing the battle graphics for 1991's Final Fantasy IV. Essentially, the move was, you know, that Falcom, uh, uh, Nihon Falcom, rather, the, the guy responsible for those games we just discussed. Bit of a mom and pop scenario, right? Which is cool for, I think, someone just getting into the fold. And starting to learn about how these games are made, but in terms of financial stability, in terms of upward growth, I think he kind of realized he needed to make the jump to like a bigger games publisher, which is how he ends up over at Squaresoft and perfect best time to be there, right? Yeah. Final Fantasy IV, he does, he does the field graphics for Final Fantasy V. And most importantly, and this is where the real DNA comes in for uh the Xeno series. He is graphic director for the iconic games Final Fantasy VI and especially Chrono Trigger in the mid-90s. And if anyone knows anything about JRPGs, they know those two games are just instrumental, just classic legendary games um, that that paved the way for everything we know in JRPGs outside of the Dragon Quest series, of course, which also huh. hugely, hugely a part of that.
4: Oh, weird! Uh Final Fantasy VI, otherwise known as Three in America. Yeah, yeah. Uh, with a weird amnesiac protagonist who discovers that uh, they are part of the system that they are now that they were are now fighting against, and Chrono Trigger, where like a bright-eyed young boy finds a mysterious sword and then ends mm-hmm. up fighting the concept of cosmic death
0: itself <laughs> uh-huh. weird weird that that's how he <laughs> got to start everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day that crispy fish that savory tartar sauce that melty cheese that pillowy bun yeah you get it
2: So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.
3: And especially Chrono Trigger, and I say that because uh, a lot we're going to see uh, a bunch of people who worked on Chrono Trigger and were instrumental for that game come with him mm-hmm. to work on Xenogears which is why you, that DNA is is there of like really pedigreed like really t- just people on like the tip of the razor's edge when it comes to JRPGs at this time in the uh in the 90s so after Chrono Trigger Takahashi decides he wants to move over to scenario writing and he puts together a blueprint for what would later be the story concept for Xenogears as a pitch for Final Fantasy VII, my, one of my my favorite game from my childhood.
4: Uh, it should be noted that this pitch was uh, kind of put together with uh, Soria Saga. Yes. Also, well, known by... You know, that's her name, I think, in one of the credits for one of the saga games. And that just becomes her yep. nom de plume. Her real name is Kaori Tanaka. She's an illustrator, a designer, and a writer. And uh she meets Tetsuya Takahashi while working together at Square. And the two end up married.
3: They get married in 1995. And uh just want to throw her also a couple of bones. If you are familiar with FF6, a.k.a. FF3 in the States she specifically created the characters of Sabin and Edgar Ooh. so like classic characters uh in the, in all of JRPGdom, and so yeah the two of them get married and i think that she she is that like unsung hero of Zeno you know behind every man mm-hmm. is right she's that she's that figure She's that great woman that I think um, was had such a huge part in why these early you know the the early success of the Xeno series and it's kind of t- and she will take a tragic turn as well when we get to Xeno Saga, unfortunately, especially part two of the Xeno Saga series. But before we get there, um, they they had this concept uh, revolving around summon beasts, you know, the summons in Final Fantasy, Ifrit, Bahamut, that kind of thing. Uh, Takaji said, I sent a proposal saying, how about this? Then they told me, well, if there's something you want to make, why don't you give it a try? So that was how it all got started in the first place because the overall concept in terms of a Final Fantasy game deemed way too dark, way too complicated, and all, With uh, way not, too many
4: sci-fi elements as well. Way too many
3: sci-fi elements, just not, not a good fit, but also intriguing enough to get its own IP. there's a it's, We're
4: dealing with Japanese developers, and one of the weird things about Japanese developers is the level of candor vastly shifts depending on how long it's been since the project came out, who they're talking to in any individual interview. Oh, uh, yeah. And so uh, there's multiple accounts of how this all went down, uh, where we went from this initial pitch to uh, Xenogears. Uh, it should be noted that Final Fantasy VII did end up with a lot of concepts that were in that original pitch and ended up in Xenogear's stuff like uh Cloud uh mirrors the protagonist of Xenogear's Faye in that he's a soldier with like a mysterious past who ends mm-hmm. up uh having multiple personalities and the revelations about his past becoming a, a huge uh driver of the plot. Even stuff like us uh, Sephiroth in Final Fantasy VII is chock full of angel imagery, and the name Sephiroth is a uh, bastardization of the Kabbalah term sefirot, uh, meaning books in Hebrew, but also is an essential part of uh, insane esoteric Jewish mysticism, and a lot of that imagery kind of uh, ends up in Final Fantasy VII.
3: Yeah, you know, we just did Attack on Titan and had some weird Jewish stuff in there. Jake, what was it like with this Again, the Japanese creators working in Judaism the
4: same way that American American nerds love putting Shinto bullshit and Japanese folk shit in their <laughs> stuff. I'd be like, they call me the Oni of Brooklyn or whatever shit like that. It's just it's 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 so alien and foreign. And uh, Kabbalah practice is right. literally built on this, like. Mystery and hype, and these esoteric symbols to drive fascination that it makes perfect sense. You know, uh, Evangelion, the, uh, that weird tree thing that you see in the beginning of the Evangelion intro is also Kabbalah.
3: Yeah, Tree of Life and all that stuff, yeah. Right. And uh, that's going to be a big part of why this becomes a more challenging series to bring back over to America. There's always just this strange push and pull when it comes to American audiences accepting more widely, like, the... Maybe not bastardization, but just the, the reinterpretation of religious iconography in, in certain ways in Japan.
4: So uh, after his pitch is turned down for being too dark, uh, he ends up working a little bit on Final Fantasy VII. His name is in the credits as uh, an art director. He definitely puts some work in there, but he's uh, incredibly frustrated. Uh, according to the video Zeno Saga and How We View Failure by Jurdan. He, uh, The main point of contention, apparently, was the way that the world was being rendered. Takahashi did not think it was the right move to have 3D characters in a pre-rendered flat world. He thought that if you want to build an immersive experience, the resources should go into building a 3D world. And that would be a more innovative and dynamic JRPG experience. This is the
3: era of the PlayStation. This is the big jump to 3D for mm-hmm. a lot of people. The era of the N64, Mario 64. 3D, the the phrase 3D in games, that is, that is the big, hot... Take it for sure and so yeah, that was definitely a big part of it. Um, him wanting to do a ga- full 3D game um for the PlayStation. this is gonna end up being altered slightly. they uh, take on the name Project Noah oh oh wait I, ju- I just wanted
4: to throw in that um the way that he was given his own team was because uh Takahashi was good friends with fucking Godhead Big Daddy of the Final Fantasy franchise. Hironobu Sakaguchi. Yep. The Gooch. The Gooch. And it was with uh, him in his corner pushing for Takahashi that he was finally able to put Project Noah together. In a uh, quote from a 2018 interview, uh, Takahashi says, "Uh, I just couldn't go along with someone who didn't want to go in the same direction as me. I was young then, so I questioned myself. Why am I making something I don't even want to? We didn't fight or anything. We're good friends, and we went out and ate together. I don't hate them. I just didn't feel right about it. That took a toll on me. So I wanted to leave the team and make something else.
3: So here is this crazy amazing team that was put together. Initially, by the way, there was a very short amount of time that this was potentially a Chrono Trigger sequel, mm-hmm. uh, and which is maybe how they, they also ended up getting this like incredible team of people. So first up, producer Hiromichi Tanaka just came off of working on Secret of Mana. Uh, Yasuyuki Hone uh, is the, was the art director. He was map designer on Chrono Trigger. Manga artist Kunihiko Tanaka, who also worked on a bunch of Nihon Falcom games, uh, did character design designs final fantasy creator sakaguchi is uh an executive producer on this koichi mashimo and his animation studio b train did the anime cutscenes. they would go on to do stuff like the dot hack series of video games so that's that's the team just name a few people so coming from all ends we've got like people who are pedigreed from the very beginnings of, of, of jrpg creation with uh you know uh, the guy who worked for uh, Nihon Falcom. You've got people coming off of Chrono Trigger, people coming off of the Final Fantasy series. It's just like this really like amazing team of people. It
4: is, and it isn't though, because even though it's uh, Takahashi's like close friends on the top tier, uh, Square did not give Project Noah the best of the best. Those people were working on Final Fantasy VII. And uh, according to uh, an interview with Takahashi, he said ninety uh, percent of my new team were kids who had no experience with 3D.
3: Oh wow! Well, 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 and so there, there you have it. The the doing a full game in 3D it proves to be very very challenging with the limitations of that first PlayStation. And so they end up with a bit of a compromise. They end up having a 2D sprite format uh, w- against a 3D background. It's an interesting look, I would say, Jake. I. I did. I do think it's like really intriguing to the point where I was looking at it and I was like, I'm so, again so shocked. I never picked up Xenogears on my PlayStation at home, especially hungry for more experiences like that after playing Final Fantasy VII because it does have a cool. Even today, I mean, yeah, it's obvious it's 3D in early PlayStation era, so it's, it doesn't look like great. But even today, those maps, like the way that the 2D characters map up against the 3D, it's interesting. It. I, I like it. it. It has a it has a cool vibe to it. Um, so yeah, I, that is that is one of the compromises. Um, then, of course, obviously, it becomes its own IP. I mentioned the summon monsters earlier. They just literally turn them into mechs. And so it's this mech-based... Gears.
4: They're called Gears, Holden, in yes, this game. Yes, but
3: they are mechs. But they are big ol' mech mechs. <laughs> a massive influence on the story is definitely Star Wars, which uh, also starts with an orphaned hero, a mentor figure that guides him to his destiny, his farm home being set ablaze, involvement in a war between an empire and a rebellion, a pirate f- uh, friend with a heart of gold, and a masked antagonist who, spoiler alert, turns out to be the hero's father. And th- this is going to be a running theme. This was a proposed six-part structure That was supposed to be uh, making up this whole epic story. This is supposed to be part one of six. No, no,
4: no. The the fucking dick punch uh, in Xeno Gears is that only when you finish the game does it say episode five. (laughs) (laughs)
3: <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. Again, huge Star yeah, yeah. Wars influence, right? Like jumping to that. Um, but yeah, so episode five, though, still in a larger six part structure. Um, the title, how they got to the title, uh, Takashi said. From the beginning, we decided on the word Zeno between the staff. In itself, that means slash has the implication of something strange or alien. But what kind of title could we draw from that? So I made a few alternatives for things we could put after Zeno. After that, we finally decided on Zeno Gears. Obviously, the name of the mechs. So that's how they get there with that. And uh, so the combat had a basis in fighting games, actually, as the player uses a combination of weak, moderate and strong hits and specific ways to pull off special death blow combos. Producer Hiromichi said, I didn't want to do the whole choose commands from a menu thing. I also wanted to build on the great feeling you get punching things. But I couldn't have commands like a fighting game because some people wouldn't be able to play it. I spent around six months to a year just coming up with the concept. So, again, in every way, they're trying to be what uh, Nintendon't, do uh, that version, but for what Final Fantasy don't. I, uh, they're, one they're of trying the
4: to big criticisms the of Xenogears is this combo system because it is not adequately explained in the game. The way you kind of build up new attacks and discover new death blows is you kind of just have to uh, trial and error multiple combos, and you don't even unlock them until you've hit the like right combo by accident <laughs> multiple times in a row, depending on what previous combos you've tried. It's incredibly complex and very um, opaque in how it's actually executed. Plus, even if you do cheese your way through without uncovering any of the death blows, the death blows you uncover directly translate to attacks that your gears can do. So if you didn't like, look it up in a guide or figure out on your own this system, you end up completely stranded and helpless when it comes to some of the bigger mech fights without this mechanic. Another thing that uh, was troublesome with the game is uh, there's platforming segments that are Incredibly hard to do with your flat 2D characters on a 3D background. Eventually, the small team working on a grander than grand vision uh, bumped up against a deadline. And Takahashi was confronted by the higher ups and was told, Listen, uh, why don't you just stop here and we'll just call it part one? Because you got to get this game out the door. It's been two years in development. Like, let's get this over with. And Takahashi, made a very specific call that a lot of people today will say almost uh, kneecaps the game and kind of prevents it from being a true classic instead of a cult classic. Uh, When you switch from disc one to disc two, the storytelling shifts almost entirely to a hybrid kind of visual novel style where there are these lengthy segments where your characters are sitting in a little pixelated chair and you're shown like screenshots of what was supposed to be happening in the game. It'll then maybe like a famous example is you get uh, an entire dungeon described to you through these slideshow cutscenes, and then they just drop you into the boss fight. And you're like, that's what that would have been. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the cutscenes get more and more convoluted. Uh, the plot starts spinning out of control. Names and concepts, once again introduced through cutscenes, start building on each other. And it ends in just this giant cosmic clusterfuck where everything you knew was not what you knew. And things, the, the bad guys were actually the good guys and the good guys were actually the bad guys. And also there's uh, a god weapon, but also the god weapon is good. Like just everything falls apart. And so a lot of people um, without the, the, a lot of people respect Gears for its ambition and its sheer scope but the execution is kind of lacking.
3: I will also give shout outs though to the music composed by Yasunori Matsuda, whose first credit was as co-composer for Chrono Trigger. Matsuda, not super interested in music at an early age, but then got back into it after watching the films Blade Runner and Pink Panther wanting to get into scoring, but also had an early interest in PCs and programming computer games. And uh, he first started at Square as a sound engineer. He created sound effects for games like Final Fantasy 5, Secret of Mana, Uh, until he gave the Gooch an ultimatum. He said, let me compose or I will leave the company. So Gooch Dog gave him a shot on a Chrono Trigger. Mitsuda said, when I compose for any game, I always first set up a theme. In this project, I had a story in my mind that was far larger than any theme I had in any game. And wouldn't you know it, he overworked himself so hard on this first game, he ended up in the hospital. He will return for a Xenosaga. So he's a very important player to be mentioned.
4: Quote from Yasuno, about uh, his um, experience composing for Xenogears. Uh, I was trying to go beyond what I had done, dot, dot, dot. Then at a certain point, I kept thinking, why am I doing such a painful thing? Can I really continue?
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it just sounds like a nightmare. And here we go. We immediately, with this first game, have a big lesson learned. And how, uh, you know, we uh, immediately are failing. Mm Right. And failure is such an important part of this story and such an important part. You know, so many times we tell stories of people who just it all comes together and it's amazing. And I just think that the failure of this story is is the centerpiece to how we get to major success later on. Uh, Speaking of failure, this was I loved this story about the English translation. It's just a great allegory for what it was like to deal with early video games translation. I mean, in the same way that the voice acting you know, time and time again I would come across uh people talking about how, you know, this is the early phase of video game voice acting. Mm-hmm. There wasn't even it wasn't even an industry really at that point. People didn't even think you could have a career in voice acting for video games, right? Like now we have these like giant people w- heavily associated with video game voice acting. So Uh, Taking the game outside of Japan, it it proved to be incredibly challenging for translator Richard Honeywood, who was initially brought in to help with Final Fantasy VII after it had been criticized for its rushed English translation. If you want to hear more about that, definitely go check out our Final Fantasy VII episode. Honeywood said, when I first joined Square, localization was an afterthought. No one expected the games to sell very well, and the foreign language versions were done on the cheap to gain a little bit of pocket money while the team prepared to move on to their next title so just immediately how much things have changed from this point in time in video game development in japan he had initially started out as a programmer that has spent time in japan as a foreign exchange student and uh from australia and formed a dev team called digital eden which unfortunately did a lot of work for the failed nintendo 64 dd mm. therefore they ended up having to close up shop uh that was his like earliest uh, attempts at um at games Xeno Gears was his first translation project for Square, which he described as Pure hell, <laughs> Honeywood said. The game was ambitious, even for Japan. It was the first major title I had to manage and translate myself because of its controversial content and the linguistic and conceptual challenges it presented. The original translators assigned to it quit mm. or asked to be assigned to other titles. When it went over schedule, I ended up having to not only direct but translate and program as well. Whoa! Heck, I even burned you're telling the discs. me random nerds yeah.
4: in the 1990s uh, looked at a where uh, the Christian space religion is a secret front to get people to uh, become space slaves and then have their bodies ground up into Soylent. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> <laughs> weird they had a problem with that
3: the team basically left it in my hands as they went on to their next game I worked around the clock sleeping in the office for months to bring it to a shippable state at the same time I had trouble with my own religion when the elders heard about the concept of the Japanese version as a translator I wanted to respect the game's creators and keep the content as close as possible to the original even the non-controversial parts were hard to translate all those scientific concepts and philosophies I look back and wonder how we ever finished it I guess I guess my naivety was, uh, at the time, was a blessing in disguise. If I knew then what I know now, I would have it would have been a totally different game. Uh, the bit about his own religion most likely has to do with him having to convince the staff not to name the final boss Yahweh, <laughs> the national god of ancient Israel and Judah, telling them, quote, it's dangerous, end quote, and eventually getting them to change the name to Deus instead. What are the implications of naming a final boss in a JRPG Yahweh?
4: Uh, it is a massive taboo within the Jewish religion to u- to use that word. Uh, even I, I, I'm not even that like strict, and I'm like nervous saying it out loud. Um, the uh, in Hebrew it's Yud uh, Hey Vav Hey. In it's Anglicized as Jehovah a lot of times, but uh, the the sacredness of the true name of God is something that you do not say casually. To the point where even when you are reading directly from the Torah, and you come across that word, you say Adonai, Mm. like you say Hashem. You do not actually say it out loud.
3: Well, I am just, I'm only saying it in the concept uh, context of this story, so please don't come at me. Uh, Much respect. So the game proves to be a financial success, at least, after all this kind of these issues and a really Mm. bunked up, bungled up disc two and uh, the crazy translation issues and all this and all this challenging stuff with the religion, the philosophy, and the sci-fi concepts all coming together. I mean, you
4: tell kids, you know, you give kids an anime robot adventure that leads them to Carl Jung, Jacques Lacan, Karen Hornay. Uh, our main character is Hornay. He's sever- severely traumatized as a child by his mother, also named Karen, <laughs> and it goes into the roots of his neuroses from his childhood and how it expresses itself. And it's no- and it's very clear that the work of Karen Horney, uh influenced the mom character and uh, the relationship with Faye, the main character. So,
3: work started on the sequel to Xenogears, but was halted due to their refocused efforts on the Final Fantasy Spirits Within film. And here is when the t- issues begin. Uh, Takahashi getting very frustrated with, essentially, his feelings that Squaresoft is way too hung up on adding to the Final Fantasy series, wanting for... New IPs, wanting for his own work to exist in uh, under Square. Also, he was probably right
4: because, uh, as we described in our Final Fantasy VII episode, the push for Square to become its own movie studio with these like billion-dollar investments in CG technology yep. was a massive boondoggle, a horrible mistake for the yeah, company. Yeah, this is a
3: big, bad era uh, for for Square in a lot of ways. And it definitely would be challenging to, if you had your own IP that was lesser than and you're trying to get it off the ground and keep working on it. It makes sense what he does, does, which is found Monolith Software in 1999 with the support of Namco founder, Masaya Nakamura. Uh And uh yeah, he just wanted uh, to get away from Square and their focus on the Final Fantasy series. Tagashi said... I personally did not favor the idea. And at the same time, such plans can possibly lead to big losses for the company, which they did. So I decided to leave Square and started seeking a company which our team can work with in creating a game that we desire. That company turned out to be Namco. Since he had distanced himself from Square, however, they had to essentially start fresh, which is how we get to this spiritual successor situation. They have to, they can't do a Gears anymore. They, they, Square owns the IP. Locked you, cannot, in,
4: yeah. you cannot use any characters. You cannot say
3: Xenogears. Yeah, it's completely out of his head. That's why Zeno Saga is announced in 1999. Uh, Tagashi said, Gears ended up differently from how I envisioned it. So we have decided to hit the reset button and start all over again with a science fiction story, which will be presented through a series of episodes encompassing the beginning to the end of the universe. So immediately what? The beginning and the end of the universe? The series of sci-fi stories? That's hugely ambitious. That's that's wild. These are These are... This is a massive undertaking in several games and, and uh, yeah, all that sort of thing.
4: Before uh, Xenosaga was released, uh, Takahashi uh, released a art book slash series Bible for Xenogears called Perfect Works. That's where he laid out a lot of his six part vision of what the story was supposed to be, dealing with the genesis of humanity all the way to the end of the universe. And a lot of people thought that this was going to be integrated into the new Xenosaga series. And, it, you know, you can pull some strings together, but it is uh, it is definitely a different sort of story.
3: Yes, for sure. Uh, it is... Where do we even begin? This is when uh, my brain started to uh, essentially rot, trying to unpack. All right, first what-
4: things first, there's a Zohar. The Zohar <laughs> is right. a big, coffin-y uh, cross thingy that ends up showing up a lot in all of these games and also the Xenoblade games. There's uh, the Gnosis, which is a big, spooky uh, alien fleet that is killing humanity left and right. Uh,
3: there's higher
4: planes of existence. There's the wave existence. There's the Yudo. There's super
3: soldier projects. Hey, do hey, do not leave out my h- hot anime uh, robot girl, Cosmos. Come oh, on now. I
4: mean, well, I mean, Cosmos is uh, the creation of, uh, what's her name? Shion, Shioki?
3: <laughs> Shion, I believe, is the protagonist. Shion
4: Uzuki. Uh, but Cosmos... First thing you gotta know about Cosmos, she's uh, a cool-headed, blue-haired robot lady. Kind of looks like Hatsune Miku. Number two, she has a secret weapon called an (laughs) X-Buster, in which uh, specifically her uterus opens up and shoots a giant laser. Third of all, she sold a lot of fucking anime figurines.
3: (laughs) I'm sure she did. I don't even want to know what they were used for. Good Lord. Uh, Yeah, Takahashi apparently created this story, the basis of the story solo this time, and then brought in Saga to help develop it and co-write the script. Uh, He gets even more biblical this time with the Deus character, more similar to the actual concept of the the, he who shall not be, or they who shall not be named. That's what I'll say uh, instead of saying the name, Uh, as well as the story of Genesis and the fall of man with fear being the main theme in the game, AKA like a God fearing man. Tagashi said the people in this game are all living with some past put upon them filled with regrets and unavoidable destinies. They all need to find their own identity and they all need to find the power to go on in life. So Tagashi also really wanted to go for that full 3D effect for the new game. Uh, This does actually end up getting mixed reviews. The character designer Kunihiko Tanaka's anime approach proved to be quite odd, wouldn't you say, Jake? This is that PS2
4: early 3D anime style aesthetic that I find immensely horrifying, actually. Specifically that PS2... 2000s 3D anime it's weird it's weird it's just there's something about the dimensions in 2D that just look very bizarre and creepy to me in 3D but uh that's what with uh, that's what they the went for. the score
3: with. is amazing composer Yasunori Matsuda this time brings in London Philharmonic for this for that uh which it's very lush very beautiful um and hey what kind of jrpg steeped in religious iconography would complete without the gregorian chants (laughs) so we get those finally working on (laughs) how many times have we covered a thing and it has a fucking gregorian chant
4: uh it's either gregorian chants or bulgarian folk singing that's (laughs) those are the two that keep showing up
3: yeah so this game highly ambitious they end up releasing in Japan, February, 2002. The story ends up being much shorter than originally planned. Yet again, it is 35 hours long, just 20% of what they intended to tell for part one for the first game, which is not good (laughs) because already they were like, it's going to be six parts. It's going to be this whole, this whole epic thing. And then they're just barely able to like chip away at just the very beginnings of what this ambitious story is trying to do. Um, and due to many different factors, this game it doesn't sell super well, as, or at least as well as expected.
4: Uh, according to the highly unreliable, um, highly highly unreliable uh, video game sales tracking website VG Charts, Xenosaga Episode One sold a million copies, which. This is the PS2. This is literally one of the most, if not the most popular and ubiquitous video game consoles of all time for a huge AAA RPG like this. That's not uh, looking good. By episode two, they're only selling in the hundreds of thousands as well as episode three. So it is not the moneymaker that, you know, it's not the, for people that want that Final Fantasy juge they want that classic Squaresoft magic, uh, Xenosaga isn't delivering like they want it to.
3: And man, does this hit Takahashi and team really hard. And this is why we get to a big shuffling within the company. Uh, Tagashi en- ends up taking more of a su- supervisor role as opposed to director in an attempt to bring in younger blood to the project and kind of just freshen things up a little bit but also I think he's starting to distance himself from the entire thing I think just between not being able to tell as much story as they wanted to tell in that first game it not selling very well it not being very well received with critics working on working on Xeno Saga uh, part episode 2 rather things just really start to fall apart Soraya Saga would end up leaving the project altogether and being end up being very unhappy with what happened to her contributions in the script, with most of it being cut. She has a very tragic personal events happening in her life as well. Um, very sad with the fate of her brother that would lead her to end up almost trying to take her own life. I mean, just very dark stuff's happening at this time. Uh, he brings in... Tagashi brings in Ko Arai, uh, serving as director. He did map designs on Xenogears, which uh, was... I think his first credit. So talk about young blood, very young blood. Uh, Norihiko Yonisaka uh, was handed the duty of writing a scenario. And later, Takahashi would admit indirectly, he essentially gave up on the series around this time. Here's an excerpt from Iwata Asks' interview for Nintendo. Takahashi said, There's an old Japanese proverb about a cricket trying to swim across a river. At first, it's swimming away happily, but halfway across, it just seems to give up. I'd worked on a lot of games, and there were times when I've done the same. And this isn't necessarily him saying that he gave up uh, specifically on Xeno Saga Episode 2, but it seems to be what he's referencing here. So they then decide, we're going to cut it down from six episodes to four, and the whole thing's now just going to be focused on Protagonist Shion and his protector Cosmos, essentially just telling the story intended in Part 1 of the whole thing, canceling out the rest. They later say, no, 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 actually, it's going to be three parts. They also intended to have a focus more on the gameplay on this next game and less on cutscenes. It was very bloated with cutscenes, mm-hmm. the Xeno Saga episode one. Very, very bloated with cutscenes. And this is going to be an issue for the series as a whole. Finding that balance between g- a very engaging gameplay and lots of story embedded in lots of cutscenes. And uh that that's that's definitely that's definitely something they work out all the way through up to today in trying to figure out how to get the right balance for players. They also Gave the characters a more realistic look, stepping away from the anime a bit in an effort to break into the North American uh, market, but also because that shit just looked kind of weird, so (laughs) definitely makes sense. And of course, yet again, intended storylines for the game had to be cut. This time, that material was put into Xenosaga Pied Piper, which uh, Namco released on mobile platforms. Also, the story ended up not continuing Shion's arc, and instead focused on a character named Junior with a great general theme of the blurring of lines between what is good versus evil. That had a lot to do with bringing in the new scenario writer, uh, Norihiko Yonisaka, who kind of took ideas and ran with it. Because again, Tagahashi just kind of fucking checked out, and I think just said, just do whatever you guys want, and therefore the the intended storyline just completely went sideways. Takahashi had this to say about his involvement before the game's release. I had a look at the messages included in the quest parts, but other than that, I let those in charge of the cutscenes and gameplay parts take care of their respective tasks, allowing the younger hands make what they wanted to for the most part. With Arai serving as director for the first time, everyone were very reliable slash level-headed So I think I'll be taking the same kind of role for Episode 3. Again, just continuing to give up. The music for Episode 2 was handled by Yuki Kajiura and Shinji Hosoe this time. Uh, We actually recently talked about Yuki Kajiura in our Demon Slayer episode. She handled compositions for that, as well as the anime Puella Magi, Madoka Magica, and games like Dot .hack Sign. Uh, Shinji Hosoe solely does video games, did a ton of stuff for Namco, such as Ridge Racer and Street Fighter E. EX, and Yasunori Mitsuda also checked out, didn't want to return, not just due to the busy schedule, but was just not liking the direction of the games, probably not liking the changing of the guard, this, that, and the other. So that uh, amazing composer steps away. The game is released in Japan in 2004, North America in 2005, and uh, they end up actually doing an anime covering the first game story and a remake of Xenosaga 1 and 2 for the Nintendo DS. In between their creation of, uh, in between creating episodes two and Xeno episode three, for which a lot of the same people return. No, uh, Ko Arai returns as director, along with Norihiko Yonesaka as writer and uh, Yuki Kajiora as composer. As for the story, since episode two was so different from what they had originally intended, this game strove to wrap up the whole series while also shifting intended story beats for episode two into this game with a refocus on Shion as the protagonist. It just sounds like it's, ooh, just not, I just is all over the place, what they're trying to do, but they're also ambitiously trying to, like, end it. Mm. They're just like, how do we bring this to an end? We need out. The, g- the game, uh, this game and the previous one did, did get some criticism, by the way, for the sexualization of the character designs, especially for Cosmos.
4: I believe another special attack, besides the one where her uterus opens up, is uh, like this clasp that covers her boobs, like pops <laughs> off and she shoots a teddy laser. It's so apparently just...
3: apparently, the character designer, uh, Mugitani Koichi, moonlights as a hentai artist with a particular interest in armed Lolita maids. Ah. So, so yeah, <laughs> very rightly so, it got a lot of criticism for being like, why is this This horny. All right. Bring Karen back. She was weirdly not that horny. Uh, The battle system was simplified uh, in episode three. It put it more in line with the traditional JRPG. While the story was found to be quite convoluted by fans. Just very, very complicated story beats, especially the ending just layer uh, just a crazy layered wild mess of story to try to close everything up. Episode 3 is released in Japan and North America in 2006 on the PS2, and after such a long development process for the series, alongside very mixed reception for these games, it seems morale is just quite low for Monolith. And they really just want a completely new start. In fact, the next game they intend to make, they weren't even going to put it in like any kind of Xeno... Series actually, it was Nintendo who they form a partnership, as we'll get into in just a second. Oh yeah, they yeah. really pushed for that. But yeah, now we're at this big turning point. And this is when Takahashi needs to dig deep, and Monolith needs to come together and bring the the love of game making back. Bring bring back what their original intention was for storytelling in JRPGs.
4: You mentioned Masaya Nakamura, who was the head of Namco who was kind of uh, the guy in Monolith Soft's corner. And just like uh, Sakaguchi was the guy in the corner back at Square, it feels like for the level of grandiose kind of auteur gaming stories that Takahashi wants to tell, you need a guy to like let the, you know, to uh, relieve the suit's concerns. So let him know like, no, we're fine. Nakamura retires and uh the new management at Namco which is soon to be Bandai Namco and even more uh kind of corporate uh culture is kind of closing in on him and so uh they reach out and try and ju- they jump ship and into the loving arms of Nintendo. Nintendo, we've talked about this multiple times, the release of Final Fantasy VII, losing the Final Fantasy series and with it all of these like other third party uh development studios is like one of their foundational sins. This was like the dark days for Nintendo. And it feels like by the two thousands with the, uh, upcoming, Wii, they still had that chip on their shoulder about not having quote unquote serious games, not having the kind of blockbuster mature titles that, uh, brought in the big money and brought in the acclaim and brought in the prestige. Mm -hmm. And it feels like a match made in heaven because here's, uh, Here's Takahashi, the you know the bad boy of Square, the 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 errant son, kind of looking for a new place to operate in with his whole team behind him. And here's Nintendo with this uh, you know casual focused new system, Project Revolution, that needs a little bit more beef, that needs a little bit more uh, mature titles, and it's a match made in heaven. They uh, immediately realize that they do not have enough time to start making a new RPG. So Monolith Soft works on Disaster Day of Crisis. Yes, a
3: light game gun specifically made
4: for the Wii. Hilariously goofy-ass game in which our main character is like this special ops guy who has to fight multiple terrorist cells (laughs) while multiple um, natural disasters happen. It's one of these so cheesy and insane that it's now a cult classic games. (laughs) But uh, it's just they thought it would be the fastest thing to turn around before the Wii came out. It was mostly developed on GameCube. uh, uh, What what do they call those? Dev kits. Like it was a hilarious misstep, but now a classic piece of Wii ephemera,
3: and really just a, a really is just exist to establish a relationship between Monolith and Nintendo. And another nice thing about this is there's no like we got to make the next one situation. No, it's just in June of 2006, Takahashi gets hit with a novel idea: uh, the idea of people living on the bodies of massive gods, and. Ends up drafting out this concept, brings it into the senior staff at Monolith, and everybody gets really excited.
4: It's uh, specifically, according to the Iwata Ass interview, he just had the idea while sitting on the train that it would be interesting if people lived on the enormous bodies of some kind of gods. That's where it began. He then shows a... He he writes the idea on a piece of paper, hands it to another senior at the company, Hirohide uh, Sugira. Then uh, Yasuyuki Hon, who you've mentioned before, offers to turn into a 3D model. And soon, people are obsessed with this idea. And immediately, the designs for the Bionis, this organic wood and stone kind of creature of the earth, and the Mechonis, this mechanized kind of metal and steel creature, are just Run like they're just infecting the crew. People are gathering, looking at the models, doing poses in the offices of the creators. People would be like, oh, if you stick your leg out like this, the that means your thigh is kind of flat and that could be like an open plane. But like, mm-hmm. oh, but then the back of your leg is like in the shade. That could be like an Arctic section or like, oh, but if the light's here, then your back's in the sun and that could be the desert area. Awesome. And people are just having tons of fun Just building on this scenario, just with the foundational concept, all the action takes place on these two big titans.
3: Yeah, and it's like just such a simple but very cool sci-fi fantasy world concept. And I think it's like that. That's such a great way for them to refine what they love about making a JRPG in the first place. And it definitely is a great premise to bring people in. And so development started in 2007. Apparently, um, Tagachi did have like just an unrelated story idea that he was able to essentially just incorporate into this idea of the world map as two giant gods, and it all connected those. Uh, the development process it, it lasts for four years. Takahashi way more heavily involved in writing the script than he had been over the last couple of Xeno games. He's back, baby. And
4: this game, this legendary game, of course, is called Monado, Beginning of the World. Yes, Monado. After which Nintendo was like hey buddy, we just paid a lot of money to have the Gears guy to be making RPGs for us. Do you mind if you just Xeno that up a little for us? Yeah, exactly.
3: Uh, It was uh, Owada himself who stepped in and was like, "Um, please make this a Xeno game. He definitely tried to make it sound like it was like, you know, I just wanted to respect the great body of work he's made in the past and this, that, and the other. It's like, well, also, like, the branding really matters, so let's definitely put a Xeno on there. Um, As for the script, he brings in anime writer, Yuichiro Takeda, as he wanted someone outside side of games to give a fresh perspective on script writing. Takeda mapped out the scenario and they passed the script back and forth to finish it along with games writer Yuri Hattori who helped smooth the whole thing out. Nintendo brought in co-director for the project Genki Yokota. He was fairly new to the company at the time actually but he will go on to direct Fire Emblem series games including the highly regarded Fire Emblem Three Houses and my personal favorite Fire Emblem game Awakening on the Nintendo 3DS. The other director is Ko Kojima, he had been with Monolith from the beginning as a quest planner on Xenosaga Episode One, so a really nice bridging of the gap between Nintendo and Monolith, and uh, I think that that worked out quite well for both parties.
4: On the Nintendo side, uh, producer Hitoshi Yamagami talks about how the Monolith put a game together was completely different than what Nintendo did. Nintendo hammers in a gameplay mechanic over and over again, iterates, 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 refines, refines, refines. And then maybe once they finally nailed down what the actual gameplay loop is, then they'll work on the scenario. Then they'll figure out what the aesthetic should be. Yeah. Meanwhile, uh, Monolith is just running around being like, Right. the sword can switch. You can so you can kill dudes. Do- it's it's it's, it's uh, g- different gears, uh, 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 gems, uh, and they're just like, what what is going on?"
3: <laughs> so it's still, they did cut way down on the cutscenes. They did attempt for a much better balance between gameplay and and uh, plot just plottiness all throughout and uh yeah also we've got this open world Tagashi wanted it to, it to be this giant open world with battles happening within it seamlessly not cutting to the battles and that that was definitely you know the the hip way to do the JRPG of the time for sure oh, so extremely
4: influenced by MMOs uh if you have ever played something like World of Warcraft the game the battle gameplay, in Xenoblade Chronicles uh is absolutely familiar you have a hot bar go below with me- with different cooldowns and different uh status effects all bouncing off each other except instead of uh, coordinating a team uh of other players the AI kind of takes over and you switch between different characters you have Ryan your tank you have Sharla your healer you have uh Ricky your Uh, beloved mascot character, as I said, 40 years old, massively in debt, has 12 kids. (laughs) And uh, one of the key things is that you are bouncing between these characters uh, because the AI is a little unreliable. You have the vision system where through the power of the magic sword, the Monado Shulk, our main character, can see enemies' attacks in the future. And so you are given kind of warnings about what the different monsters are about to do. And you have to, like, counter it. It's a very uh, chaotic... But involved gameplay with tons of mechanics and tons of interactions and tons of uh different ways that different arts kind of build up on each other. Synergies is the word I'm looking for, Holden. The only downside to this gameplay is that from an outside perspective, with all three characters shouting their various catchphrases and announcing their attacks, it is super chaotic. Yeah. It is almost impossible to follow. Uh, if you watch any diff if you watch any bit of Xenoblade Chronicles gameplay, you will hear so much noise and so many <laughs> cross chatter and so much insane shit while an incredibly banging soundtrack is also blasting in the background. Yeah,
3: it's the one thing that's made me not just immediately want to jump to getting it. That sounds rough, but... Uh I think I still, you know, I'll still stomach it, but yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it's
4: it's battles like this where memes and catchphrases like Shulk just going, "I'm really feeling it," and Ryan yelling, "Is <laughs> Ryan time?" Is but becomes, it's
3: it's beautiful. The gameplay seems really fun, really addictive. The the I mean, it, it it does suffer probably from a bit of a side quest bloat, shall we say? But well, uh, how
4: else are you supposed to get your affinity system up, and then how do you rebuild Colony Six or is it Colony Nine? I forget. There's mechanics on mechanics on mechanics. You can easily spend 100 hours in this game.
3: Yeah, yeah, which is good, though, at the same time. I mean, think, I think there's something to that. Nowadays, I opt more for a shorter gaming experience because of where I am in life, but back in the day, especially when I was a kid, a JRPG like this is exactly what the doctor ordered. I want to be able to just buy a game and play it for months and months and months without uh-huh. having to move on to anything else. So, yeah, it comes out in 2010 to much critical acclaim, solid sales, and this is the huge comeback that Takahashi And monolith needed. Well,
4: it comes out kind of because in America, Nintendo of America just kind of knew where the wind was falling, and there was kind of a dearth of just mighty and uh, noble attempts to have serious games on the very casual focused Wii, and they all kind of fell flat. I'm thinking of uh, Red Steel, I'm thinking of The Conduit. I'm thinking of uh, even uh, classic dev studios like Platinum all tried to veer from the casual motion control uh, mold and ended up not doing well with overseas sales. And so Nintendo of America did not want to release Xenoblade Chronicles uh, in America. There was a British or European release, and as is with any European release, they have to do multiple languages, English, French, Spanish, Italian... And it was through the work of of noble fans who operated together as Operation Rainfall that they just continuously bugged Nintendo at cons, at forums, just wherever they could get a hold of people. They had a physical letter-writing campaign where they just letter-bombed the uh, North American offices. Uh, This was done for Xenoblade Chronicles, The Last Story, and Pandora's Tower, Three uh, epic-scale JRPGs, now considered classic. The last story is also another one that people truly love. Even after repeated attempts to get the games released in America, Nintendo was still recalcitrant, which then led to a doubling down to Operation Downpour. Finally, finally, Nintendo relented. And it's 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 kind of one of the few times where being part of a loud, uh, Im- adamant fan movement Resulted in something that and the Sonic animation design
3: change. Sonic's teeth. That will always be. Yeah. Sonic's teeth will always be the classic for that. Well, I'm glad it did. It uh, definitely did well out here. Definitely one of the first times I really, truly heard about the Xeno series of Mm -hmm. games as it was well regarded by the video game reviewers and whatnot that I was listening to on podcasts and stuff like that. Um, And it leads to the spiritual successor, Xenoblade Chronicles X, which is more about gameplay, correct, than story.
4: The exploration is definitely secondary to the plot um, in this one. Also full of big rug pulls, even more, almost entirely sci-fi based. Oh, okay. But still has the uh, same kind of uh, hot bar, MMO style kind of uh, team management battle mechanics as Xenoblade Chronicles. This one, Uh, You're not lovable Shulk, uh, who was designed as a a hero who was not to be hated in the first one. Uh, This time you use a custom character, which uh, it also uses a much more 3D anime aesthetic that I found Mm. very upsetting. (laughs) I did not like the look of this, but uh, you're on a foreign planet. You're fleeing aliens unless you're the aliens, unless you're not actually alive, unless maybe the humans are the bad guys, unless the aliens are the bad guys. It kind of has a, uh, it doesn't have a strong ending. It kind of ends on a little bit of a cliffhanger. But I, this was of the games, uh, this is the one I dwindled on the least. I just watched a plot synopsis. And, uh, you know, if you love uh, grinding to afford better mechs,
3: This is the game for you. And then lastly, Xenoblade Chronicles 2 was released on Nintendo Switch in 2017.
4: And uh, oh, Pyra. Oh, Pyra and Mithra. Uh, This one was a, uh, again, it feels like the Xenoblade series has been Nintendo's attempt to chase that uh, JRPG dragon. And while uh, Xenoblade Chronicles and Xenoblade X were chasing kind of that MMO aesthetic, uh, now, Xenoblade Chronicles 2, still using uh, a lot of the same mechanics, went big hard on the gacha waifu mechanic with the introduction of the blade system, where your characters collected core crystals throughout the game, there weren't micro microtransactions, so it wasn't as nefarious as, uh, you know, something like uh, the Fire Emblem uh, mobile game or Genshin Impact or whatever. But if you paid for the uh, season pass, you got a few extra cores and better chances of getting the rare blades. And the rare blades were from a plethora of fan-favorite artists and original designs to the point where they almost don't fit in the general aesthetic of the rest of the game. It's kind of balls to the wall with some of these blade blade designs. An overwhelming number of the blade designs are sexy ladies. (laughs) of various fetishes, whether you're about uh, them them furries or them uh, stern yonderis or them uh, cute uh, little sister figures. It's just, it's just, please someone get infatuated with one of these designs and just keep putting time in this game till you get the one you like. It has a lot of thematic similarities in this game. Uh, all the land is on these floating titan beasts instead of these giant giants like in Xenoblade 1. Um, there's kind of rug pulls on rug pulls and a lot of the big boss, big baddie metaphysical aspects of Xenoblade Chronicles 2, very similar to Xenoblade Chronicles 1. It's, uh, it's sold really well. I mean, Pyra and Mithra made it into Smash Brothers, so, like, that's a big deal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, some people don't like the main character Rex, other people defend him because he's supposed to be a child out of his element. God, it's my brain. I can feel my brain leaking because know, there's right? just so
3: much lore and so many mechanics all just fighting for attention. I will just say, I think it's just incredible that Takahashi, who started making these Xeno games back in the late '90s, is still creating it decades later. Such a challenging premise, such a challenging basic setup for, uh, you know, what these games are supposed to be every time out the gate and and still has been able to break through just enough to keep going it, it really is like an incredible story of fortitude of failing upwards of you know committing and and I love to see it and I just can't believe this creator has still continued to be able to make these like giant sprawling video games the way that he has
4: specifically it's like it's about the jrpg experience yeah it's about The leveling system, it's about collecting gear. It's about this episodic story that just gets grander and grander in scale where almost inevitably in all of these games, you are a, if in theory, you are just a very well-trained little boy fighting the actual god of the universe (laughs) itself to the point where you are rebelling against the providence of fate itself and demanding to forge your own Way forward, which is very inspiring, uh, appeals to the psychology and psychodynamics of your average video game player. And all the characters you meet along the way, some you fall in love with, some you laugh at, some you turn, you mute the dialogue on. Uh, The Xenoblade saga, the Xeno saga, the Xeno series is expansive and you can lose yourself in it. And uh, if you are not afraid of a JRPG being unapologetically a JRPG. Yeah. With like horny little mischief cutscenes and big speeches about, you know, your honor and about humanity's right to forge its own destiny and everything that that's involved with. You're gonna love these games. And the fact that it's Nintendo and Square finally united yeah. in its own weird way after the split in the 90s just makes it a fascinating false circle.
3: So here's my final quote this is from a polygon article by Jeremy Parrish There's something special about the Xeno games. They faced a constant uphill struggle between corporate upheavals and the general gaming audience's inherent distrust of wordy games. Xenosaga's tendency to use Nietzsche quotes as subtitles undoubtedly didn't do the series any favors sales-wise. Nevertheless, Tetsuya Takahashi has proven above all else to be a man who wants to tell an elaborate story about God, robots, and the origins of all life. He's been wrestling with that particular angle for 20 years now. And Xenoblade 2 seems to have done pretty well for itself, which means he's probably not about to give up now which I think is a really cool way to close that thought out I love the perseverance Takahashi keep keep making them Uh, and yeah thanks so much for joining us Uh, thanks so much for persevering through to the end of this episode if you'd like to persevere over to our Patreon to support us further we'd greatly appreciate it patreon.com forward slash whizbrew uh the five dollar layer we do weekly bonus episodes such as wizard in the news or we talk about current events and uh the gaming and anime and yada 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 worlds while also talking about the things we're currently enjoying uh video game wise comic book wise you name it at the fifteen dollar layer you can join our sunday study session uh where we every sunday uh, go over whatever topic we're studying that week for an hour and a half or so uh we greatly enjoy that discord channel so far a bunch of cool people meeting up every single week. Super fun. And lastly, the $25 layer uh, gets you a shout-out at the end of an episode, if you so wish. And I just want to shout-out everybody on our $25 layer. David, Genji, Nick, Cassandra, Andrew, and lastly, Bailey. And Bailey has a shout-out for us this month. Bailey says, John, we miss you. Please come home to gag beautiful New Jersey. (laughs) You can either lather... (laughs) You can can even lather up and slug me like the good old days. (laughs) In all seriousness, though, Jack, you're a great guy and a great friend. Happy for you and all that you've accomplished. Can't wait to shred the gnar with you soon. Your friend. Bailey. Hell yeah, Bailey. Thank you so much for that. Again, the $25 there, if you want your own shout-out. And thank you to all of our patrons over at patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. Uh, check me out on Twitch, twitch.tv forward slash holdenatorsho. I stream Monday, Tuesday, Fridays. That Yet again, um, that is twitch.tv forward slash holdenatorsho. James!
4: Hey, I'm also streaming now. The the VTubing bug, it bit me, and now I have a fun animated avatar, and uh, I'm streaming all over the place, but the one thing I really gotta stress is Thursdays is the cartoon dumpster, where we are uh, picking through the trash from the past 40 years of IP-negligent animation and watching some bizarre wonderful, jaw-droppingly weird cartoons. And uh, I think the people who show up there are really sweet and nice, and I think if you like what we do on the show, you'll enjoy it. So go to YouTube.com slash Puppet Jared, and uh, check me out Thursdays.
3: Alright, there you have it. Thank you again, everybody, for joining. And hey, always remember, never stop whizzing. And keep on bruising. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors, you can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com.
0: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day.